Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome Butch Vig, a man who produced two of the most famous bands of the 90s, the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. Plus, we'll review the new albums by Beach House and Goldfrapp. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, it may be our country, as John Mellencamp sang, but it is no longer Senator John McCain's song. (laughs) This is a really funny story that we meant to talk about a couple of weeks ago when it first broke. The McCain campaign, which is now, I mean, he's the Republican presidential candidate, right? It's a done deal. He was using originally Our Country by Mellencamp at many of his campaign stops because everybody's got to have a cool campaign song. I don't know about you, but I've gotten half a dozen calls in the last couple of weeks from other news organizations that want my thoughts as a rock critic about what (laughs) song, who's using it, and he's using it, she's using I'll tell you one thing. It was wrong of McCain to use Mellencamp because I don't think he really listened to the tune. It's quite clearly a pretty uh, left-leaning song by a very left-leaning artist. Uh, Mellencamp himself was supposed supporting John Edwards before he dropped out of the Democratic primary. And uh, the publicist for Mellencamp sent a a note to the McCain campaign saying, basically, uh, you might want to listen to this. The McCain campaign, without any comment, dropped it from their playlist. McCain has used a couple of other songs before. I don't think a clear uh, replacement has emerged for Mellencamp. But a while back, he was using uh, ABBA's Take a Chance on Me when he was kind of the underdog. And he was using Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar. I think he's in trouble in, as far as choosing music. I think he needs to listen to his daughter, Sid <laughs> McCain, who uh, used to run publicity for V2 Records. Very cool label. You know, she worked with Moby. She worked with uh, Spiritualized. I really think that the senator ought to come out uh, at every campaign stop to ladies and gentlemen we are floating in space i mean how cool would that be But what are the Democrats doing? Well, you know, I think the hippest crowd is is the Barack Obama crowd right now because this guy's been using uh, Sign Sealed Delivered, I'm Yours by Stevie Wonder, which is not exactly a new song, but it's kind of cool to hear cool. that song. It's a great song. You can't deny it. It fits with what he's trying to accomplish. He's using a Ben Harper song called Better Way. And then, of course, there's been the separate campaign, which Obama has not endorsed officially, but it has been a somewhat of a campaign theme for him. People are going in the studio recording songs for him. Exactly. I, Will I Am, the hip-hop producer, took that mantra that Obama has been using in each one of his campaign speeches, Yes, We Can, and turned it into this montage-like video using stars like Scarlett Johansson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and John Legend. It became a viral hit, five million views on YouTube alone. And now he's come up with a second video Will I Am has along similar lines. It's called We Are the Ones, and here's a little bit of it on Sound Opinions. I would 
like to see um, a cleaner earth for my child that I'm bringing into the world very soon. I think it's time for change. I want a better future for my children. I would like our environment to be safe. Necesitamos respetar nuestro planeta. Este es nuestro América. Greg, that is uh, We Are the Ones by Will I Am, who I am having to apologize for more and more lately. But what is what is Hillary Clinton doing? Well, Hillary, uh, you know, went through this big rigmarole of having uh, people pick her campaign song, and it ended up being You and I, Celine Dion. You know, thankfully she dropped that. She decided that's not going to work. I think it was that was a Canadian (laughs) plot. I think Canadians were infiltrating, you know, the Clinton campaign and sabotaging her. And now lately she's been using uh, this big head ton in the monster song called Blue Sky. She's also been using Springsteen's The Rising. You know, it's interesting how much of a bigger role these songs and how they keep rotating because the campaigns and the candidates, I think, seem to realize uh, what a connection the songs have in listeners' minds, in voters' minds, yeah. about what their campaigns represent. Even It's much like TV advertising, Jim. They don't listen to the whole song. Right. They just get that bumper sticker chorus and that's right. what they want want up there. She was using American Girl by Tom Petty, which is really kind of a sad song uh, yeah. about, you know, it's, it's not exactly an upbeat song. But yet she focused on that chorus and said, you know, American Girl and Red, White and Blue, and maybe that's what it means. I mean, Greg, why is this an even an issue? Because I think when a campaign song works, it really puts the candidate over the top. If we, we took a look at the history of this in the last century or so, and we're looking at some of the songs that really worked. Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932 claimed Happy Days Are Here Again, which had been written a couple of years earlier. It was written when the American economy looked pretty good. And then, of course, you had the Great Depression. Yeah. Here was Roosevelt coming along saying, I'm going to fix America. You know, happy days are going to come back. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to be the guy. I think it was similar to what John F. Kennedy did with High Hopes in the era of Camelot, yeah. which, you know, I'll point out was a, was a musical, right? Yes. Uh, but High Hopes, you know, just what can that little ant do, right? Becomes John <laughs> F. Kennedy. Now, we really didn't get into the rock and roll era and candidates uh, choosing songs that have been pre-recorded by rock artists until 72 when you had George McGovern. He's campaigning against the war in Vietnam. He chooses this song by Paul Simon, which I think was you know pretty inspired. Like a bridge over troubled water I will lay me down Bridge over troubled water, a pretty inspired choice, I think, for uh, Senator McGovern during the uh, turbulent days of the Vietnam War. Didn't work for him, though. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get into office, right? Nor was Bob Dole elected in 1996. Whoever I had the idea of having uh, Sam and Dave's famous hit, Soul Man, re-recorded by Sam. Sam Moore was alive <laughs> yeah. as Dole Man. I mean, that's pretty funny. There wound up being some trouble because the people who wrote the song and still held the copyright didn't much appreciate that. And, I, you know, there wasn't much soul to Bob Dole. But nevertheless, I mean, Dole Man is pretty funny, you got to admit. But I think uh, for sheer cheesiness factor, and I I think the, the reason that this man lost the 1988 election is because of his choice of campaign song. And I'm only partially joking. Michael Dukakis, <laughs> the theme song for his 88 campaign against George Bush was Neil Diamond's America. So that's a bad, bad song uh, for Dukakis to choose. (laughs) With Bush, though, I don't think the choice was any more astute. He went with Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. Oh, the first Bush. Yeah. If Woody was alive, he would have been appalled. And I don't think that people looking back on that first Bush campaign in 1988 associate George Bush Sr. in any way with that song or what, with, what the, with the motives behind A, a behind socialist. That. A yeah. socialist and labor activist being adopted by a Republican? This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me I think the person who got it right for better or worse, was uh, Bill Clinton in in 92. I mean, Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac was his campaign song in 92, and people still look back on that more than a decade later and associate that song with the first Clinton campaign. Don't stop 
Well, Greg, above and beyond it being thematically fitting to the Clinton campaign, I think you also have to look at the fact that it was it was demographically correct. Yes. You know, President Bill Clinton was the first baby boom president, mm-hmm. first representative of that generation that came of age in the 60s to take the White House. And he chose a very baby boom anthemic, you know, rumors, one of the best selling albums of all time in the 70s. Um, I think that that's important. And I think that if the candidates looked to uh, some people for some help in choosing uh, songs that were demographically, thematically correct, musically correct. In fact, you know, we do this Rock Doctor segment from time to time where people come to us and say, we need some help. (laughs) Now, we're nonpartisan journalists. We don't want to take anybody's side. We're not going to endorse a candidate. But uh, I'd be happy to give McCain some advice. I'm sure you would give uh, Clinton some advice. I think most of all, Barack should come to us. We could say, hey, listen, man, you're from Chicago, right? And and you, you want to have this new image of a younger, hipper. You know, go with a Gen X band. Go with Smashing Pumpkins. They were from Chicago. I hear you. You know, Barack, Hillary, John, you're out there. Get the pens out right now. I'm going to give you the number. Right now, call it anytime. one 859 We'll give you a campaign song. We're going to give it to each of you, though. Exactly. Because we don't want to take sides. I'm so happy because today from my friends are in my That, of course, is the song Lithium by this little band called Nirvana, recorded, produced by Butch Vig of Madison, Wisconsin. We thought that it would be interesting to take Butch Vig through his career because it spanned the uh, indie rock 80s when he was in a band called Spooner, and it really was a major part of the story in the alternative era when he was working with Sonic Youth and Smashing Pumpkins and, of course, Nirvana. And then the post-alternative era when he linked up with Shirley Manson, the singer in Garbage. Uh, So uh, we're going to talk to... Butch Vig about that illustrious career and exactly what it is a producer does. Butch, you had a very humble beginning. You, you, you were studying music at the University of Wisconsin, right? I mean, that's that's kind of where you uh, cut your teeth a little bit on, on, on production and, and being a producer. I mean, did you know even then that uh, that's what you wanted to do for a living? I didn't, but I mean, I, I grew up in a, a musical family. My mom was a music teacher, and uh, I started playing in bands in college. Uh, I went to film school at the University of Wisconsin and started doing a lot of electronic music scores. By the time I finished college, I had sort of started to immerse myself in the in the Madison scene, and I had met Duke Erickson who, who, and, and Steve Marker, who both ended up playing in garbage with me. And, uh, Steve and I started a studio, and it was probably one of the most boneheaded things we could ever do because we had no idea what we were doing, you know, no business sense at all. And, and luckily we sort of latched onto uh, the local punk scene there and uh, and just sort of took off. I mean, it was a slow build, but um, we seemed to stay busy. And uh, it, it to me, it wasn't a job. And, and, and even though I, I've worked very hard over the years, uh, I still, like I said earlier, I love going into the studio and I love uh, being involved in music. On the television! You were working with a lot of young bands uh, in the 80s, obviously, Butch. Uh, Smart Studios, what, opened about 1984, is that right, in Madison, Wisconsin? Yeah, yep, um, 1984. And I have got a ton of records in my collection, you know, back then when we were buying vinyl still. Uh, picking up all this, all these indie rock bands that I was into, you know, Killdozer and Dekreutzen and The Fluid and Urge Overkill and Laughing Hyenas, L7, Tad. And I kept saying this guy's name, Butch Vig, Butch Vig, Butch Vig. I mean, he was like, you were the... You sort of turned out to be the go-to guy for a lot of those independent bands who didn't have a lot of money to spend, had a cool sound, and just wanted to get into the studio and get some music down. How did that evolve that you you went from this local guy in, in Madison who really didn't know what he was doing by your own admission to starting to record all these indie bands from around the country uh, in the 80s? I mean, uh, you're mentioning all those names, and uh, it just brings a smile on my face because those records were fun. They, there were no rules, you know. They, since they were all in indie labels, I would just get a call from Touch and Go or from Sub Pop, and they say, "We got this band, you know. When can you get him in?" And I'd say, "Well, I've got like you know five or six days, and you know next month or whatever." 
you know, the budgets were cheap, so we had to make them fast. And but they, they, there was never sort of any commercial constraints or anything. They, you know, we didn't we didn't even do pre production back then. The, the band would just show up. They, the, the van would pull up to Smart. I'd help them load the gear in and make a pot of coffee. And uh, and we'd just okay, what? Well, let me hear the first song. Let's do it. And we, we would do it. And <laughs> and it was cool. I mean, I think one of the reasons that some of the records um. I started to get a lot of work was because, you know, I'm a pop geek. I just love pop music and melodies, and, and, and I wanted things to sound good. I wanted to hear separation, you know, between the guitars and drums and, and vocals and the bass or whatever instrumentation they had. And and so I think even though those records were fast and uh, kind of down and dirty, I think they sort of did have a vibe, and you could hear the hooks when they, when there were hooks. And um, that's I think that's why I got a lot of work, really. And that's why, I mean... That it just sort of snowballed. Uh, that whole indie scene led to me, you know, st- uh, working with Billy Corgan. Heard those records, and that's why he called me from the Pumpkins. Corgan comes out there to do that that Pumpkins record, and that uh, I guess that's the real superstar first act that put you on the map. First time you were had a, had a record on the Billboard charts. Yeah, and I mean I, I loved working with Billy because he's very intense and very driven. But when we made Gish, that was the first album where we actually had time. I was like, oh my god, we have like thirty days to make a record, and and we worked like fourteen or fifteen hours every day for those thirty days to to you know just to try and make it sonically take it to another level and uh, i really really respected his work ethic and just his talent and uh you know we, we sometimes would butt heads but more often than not i think we sort of got a a lot of chemistry and sort of were on the same wavelength in terms of what we were trying to do with those records and i'm, I'm really proud of uh of the work i do with the pumpkins i think those records still hold up really well yeah that was a pretty uh you know amazing opening statement for that band and i remember talking to corgan as soon as he got off the recording session and Corgan was saying, like, one by one, the band was dropping like flies. And the only guy who could stay up all night with me was that guy, <laughs> was that producer Butch, you know. And it was just like, it sounded like you guys were, like, going the, you know, long 36-hour stretches with no sleep and just working obsessively over this over this record. It almost sounded like you'd gone so far in that you almost didn't know your way out at, at a certain point. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you say that because I remember at the, the end of Gish, uh, I, we were trying, we were struggling with the last mix, and you're right, we hadn't slept for like two days or something, and and I remember Billy crawled under the console for like m- maybe an hour and a half to try and get a little shot out while I was trying to figure out something in the mix with the guitars or whatever, and and it was a real bitch of a mix. I can't remember which song it was now, but and, and at that point, I remember it was like six a.m. It was our last day in the studio, and and. You know, Billy and I were exhausted. We sort of looked at each other, and I think we said something like, "You know, when you finish a record, there's it's not like everyone jumps up in the air and high fives and goes hooray. It sort of is the, the last man standing. Okay, it's time <laughs> to go home." One of the things with the Pumpkins, Butch, is that uh, obviously there it was a very volatile band, four very uh, distinct personalities. You mentioned Corgan and, and Jimmy Chamberlain and the drummer, and Darcy Retzky on bass and James Eha on guitar. Uh, four people who really didn't belong in a band together, um, yet were in this band and and had a chemistry, uh, created a lot of issues in the studio, obviously with Gish, and certainly exacerbated when you did Siamese Dream with them in 93, which was their huge breakthrough. But, I mean, you, you're not only a producer, but you had to be some, something of a psychologist and a, and a coach to, to sort of get along with, the, get everybody getting along and getting on the same page. I mean, was that the biggest challenge for you with that band, is just, just sort of keeping the personalities together in the studio? Yeah, it really was. That was the record that I realized a record producer is a psychologist, and that's probably your job actually more than just you know worrying about the music. It, it's it was such a uh, tentative time for the band. I mean, they had high hopes for what they wanted to do, and yet they were just set at uh, the stress level was ready to break. After a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to continue our discussion with producer Butch Vig, and later on we're going to review new records from Beach House and Goldfrapp.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, where we're going to pick up with our discussion uh, with producer Butch Vig. You're hearing a little bit of Smashing Pumpkins right now, one of the most difficult recording sessions in Butch Vig's career, and we asked him a little bit about the difficulties of working with Billy Corgan and company. It was by far the hardest record I've made. Just, you know, we went straight through for five months in Atlanta, you know, sometimes seven days a week, 14 or 15 hours a day. And then we came out to L.A. and mixed, I think, for 36 straight days with uh, wow. Billy and Alan, Alan Mulder and I. And uh, I remember I, I think I lost, like, 10 or 15 pounds. And uh, wow. I, for, like, two weeks when the record was done, I just lay on the couch and vegged out. I couldn't even... I was catatonic, basically. And, and, and there was something... About that band, the, the sort of um, the, the misfits between the four of them, how they connected. I mean, even though Billy played a lot of the guitar and bass, you know, almost everything on Siamese Dream, there was something needed about the whole band together, how they talked about the songs and when they would work out arrangements. And I mean, they were just phenomenal live. I mean, when we made Siamese Dream, we wanted to make something really glorious and ambitious. And, uh, you know, it wasn't. Um, let's go in the studio and we'll just record Oh Naturel and we'll put that out because that's how we sound. I mean, some of the songs had 40 or 50 or 60 guitar overdubs on them. And, <laughs> you know, we, we lost our minds a little bit, but I think that the, the songwriting and just sonically how the album turned out, I think it uh, it was worth the, worth the effort. Well, it's interesting what you, you just said too, Butch, that even if uh, if Eha or, or Darcy weren't on a track, the fact that they were part of the mix and living with the Pumpkins and living with Corgan and, and giving their feedback, I mean, they were still part of the band. Yeah, definitely. And, the, you know, they would, we were set up on the studio and we would run through arrangements and try, you know, when we're getting ready to track a new song and, you know, they would play all the parts and, uh, and sometimes just the discourse between uh, James and Darcy and Billy, or Jimmy and, and Billy, you know, th- th- you know, they, there was tension, but that tension and, and trying to figure out the arrangement and what they were going to play and, and the tempo and speed and the vibe, you know, is it going to be louder? Are we going to pull back here and be quiet? There, there was group input from that, and I think some of that came from them playing live and being such a phenomenal live band. The, the truth is, though, that Billy is just an amazing musician, and when it came to getting some of the parts down, we started overdubbing the guitars and bass. He was just great at it. The other issue, too, was uh, Chamberlain was uh, already sort of sinking into uh, uh, drug use, and you know those kind of issues were, were becoming a part of the band's psychology as well. How were you able to sort of keep Chamberlain in the studio long enough to, to record? I mean, were there issues where, like, you know, I heard stories like he was MIA during some of those sessions, and, I mean, that must have been hell to, to go through that. It, it was, and, uh, and the funny thing is, one of the reasons we chose Atlanta was we thought we'd go someplace where we didn't know anybody, and we'd be kind of isolated. You know, the studio was kind of north of the city, and within one day, Jimmy knew every drug dealer and hooker and, and <laughs> crazy person in the city. I mean, all of a sudden, this parade of, of lunatics started coming by the <laughs> studio. It got pretty bad. There was one point where he was MIA for a couple of days, or he'd show up to play, and it was clear he couldn't play very well. It just, we, you know, we'd go, well, that's it. We're going home. We're not doing anything today. And, and you know, Billy would get really pissed off at him and just, and say, look, you got to get your shit together and come in and play tomorrow. And usually he would, but there was one day where he, he went, uh, he didn't show up and we didn't see him for a couple of days. And we started freaking out, going, oh my God, maybe something happened to him. And he finally showed up uh, two or three days later. And, and I said, okay, look, I'll play drums in this record, man. And there was no way in hell I could play like him or play any of those parts. But I think we sort of had to put the fear of God into him. That, you know, if, you, if you're going to be part of this band, then you have to put your, your musicianship and your, your playing first. I remember we did, after the MIA, after the three days he was gone, we did Cherub Rock, one of the key tracks on the record. And, you know, we ran through the song a couple of times, and we went for a take, and I literally think he nailed it on the first take. Mm-hmm. We did another take. It was incredible. And, and Billy came in and said, I want to do like another 20 takes. Mm. <laughs> and so I said, you know what? So I got on the speaker and said, okay, it's not quite there. It's not good enough. We got to do another one. And so we, we sort of tortured him. I know that sounds terrible and sadistic in a way, but to his credit, man, he played 20 takes blazing on fire. Everyone fantastic. And his hands were a bloody pulp when he finished. Oh, and my we God. Got, you know, a couple hours later, I said, okay. Boy, you can go home, get some sleep. We're going to come back and rock again tomorrow. And uh, and you used the second take. Yeah, we used the second take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Butch, tell us, uh, how, how did the Nirvana record, uh, Nevermind, come to be done uh, with you? Had they heard the Gish recordings and the, and the track on, uh, on singles by the Pumpkins or what? Well, I got a call from Jonathan at Sub Pop, and he called and said, you got to work with this band, Nirvana. They could be the next Beatles. I'm thinking, yeah, right, I've heard that before. And they were on tour doing some shows in the Midwest, and so he, we, we figured out there was like a six-day window where they actually were playing a show in Madison, and uh, and we could squeeze them around like three days on either side of that show and, and do some recording. And it was ostensibly for a sub-pop album. And so lo and behold, like a couple weeks later, they just showed up in this in, in the sub-pop van that all the bands took out. And it's like I helped them load in the amps and stuff, and we started setting up. And uh, I, I sensed right away that Kurt was uh, unique and special in, in that he was very charming, very engaging, and super witty, and then something would snap, and he would just go sit in the corner and not say anything. You know, and this is, I, he'd been in the studio for a couple hours, and I'm like, Kurt, is everything okay? Are you hungry, or, you know, you want to lay down, you don't feel good? And he wouldn't even say anything to me, and finally Chris came up and said, look, Kurt just gets in these moods, you know, it'll just pass, don't worry about it, we'll just keep working on the bass sound or something, and and that's, I mean, as I said, he'd only been in the studio a couple hours, and I realized that he had these incredibly potent mood swings mm. and uh, and very difficult to deal with, you know. And, and he, I just knew from the get-go that he was special. I mean, the songs they played that first day were, you know, they played In Bloom, and um, I can't remember all the other songs we did for those sessions, but they, they were incredible. Before they came in the studio, uh, Jonathan had sent me Bleach, and I was, you know, I liked the record. I was not a, a super fan of all the songs on there, but the song I, I gloriously fell in love with and played over and over again was about a girl, because to me that had sort of a Beatles mm-hmm. melody and chord structure. realized that he had songs that he wanted to, to start to open up with and he'd be sitting in the corner playing guitar these are some of the songs that end up being on Nevermind and I'd hear him just sort of quietly singing this melody over the chords and go wow that's fantastic what is it and he goes no that's just something I'm working on I don't know if I like it or not and you know and it turned out to be a teen spirit or come as you are or whatever mm-hmm. and I think he he always kind of struggled with that pop sensibility because I think he thought it was easier to sort of put on more of a punk attitude and play something more primal but it was he was blessed with that kind of melodic gift and that's something i discovered from those early uh, smart sessions Giffen eventually made a deal to uh, put out Nevermind with uh, Sub Pop on a major label. And uh, I remember talking to the reps at the label before the record came out because they go, man, this, this thing is fantastic. And they said, well, I think we're going to sell 50,000. I think it's really going to be big. You know, it's going to be a big, small record. Uh, they had no idea that it was going to be as big as it was. I mean, did you have a sense when you were recording it that uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was going to be like this era-making song? I mean, did you feel like it was at that level at that point? No way. I mean, I, I knew the song was great. It was it was clearly sort of the, the standout track on the record, um, the one that I kept sort of gravitating to. You know, as soon as we got the rough mix done after Kurt had finished the vocals, I made a cassette, which I still have somewhere. It's just off the Neve board with no EQ, no reverb or compression, so it's just dry and like just everything's sort of straining to come through the board, and it, it sounds incredible. And I just played it nonstop in my car when I was going back to the studio. And, and a few people who I knew in L.A. at that time, you know, I'd, I'd st- start playing it for them. they go, holy sh- play that for me again. And they're starting to get this little buzz around some of the people who knew I was in there. They, they would start asking me, you know, How, how's the Nirvana record? And then I get a call before I go in the studio. You know, I heard you're working with Nirvana. What's it like? Can I hear something? And 
I'd never really experienced that before, that there was this sort of tangible buzz about the band. And uh, it was just such a, a heady moment, a heady time for me. And then just see, to see their record explode like that was, uh, and I was absolutely thrilled to be a part of it. How much, uh, you know, uh, studio as an instrument approach did you use on Nevermind? Because my sense is, Butch, it wasn't a completely, you know, in-the-moment type of record. Like, here's the band live, and we're going to set up some microphones. It, there, was some, there was some construction going on, right? There were drum loops and things like that. Were, was that actually used on that record? Yeah, I, I didn't use drum loops, but I did some drum editing. Um, Dave was a great drummer, though. We, I think we only used a click track on, like, two songs on, on Nevermind. But I, I was, I knew that Kurt had no patience, so I would usually go in the studio at noon or one and tell him to come by at like three or four, so I could get the things set up for whatever we were doing that day. And then they would play, and I wouldn't have them do a lot of takes. You know, if it was kind of a basic track, I'd maybe get two or three or four takes, and usually they'd get it on like the second or third take. And then I would go back and and try to get uh, both Chris and. Kurt to, to overdub to get the parts tightened up that I thought were looser. If I didn't if I didn't like the sound, I'd go back and change it. Chris was cool. That was very hard with Kurt. Um, he thought it was cheating, you know, to go back and to work on something again, and and it's sort of from, coming from that punk purist uh, mm-hmm. attitude. And so I, I would say, well, John Lennon would double track his vocals, or John Lennon would double track his guitar, or whatever. Anytime I used Lennon as a reference, it worked. I, I could, mm. He'd go, okay, he'd go, okay, Butch, I'll go do it, and. And uh, and he was great at it. I, I I just think that he felt like you know he he didn't really want to do that kind of thing because he he felt that was getting too slick. But and the, ultimately the record is really guitar based drums. There are overdubs on it, but it still sounds like a you know a three piece band. We we tried to in the arrangements and stuff. We didn't put on a lot of extra bits and things that they couldn't necessarily do live. And uh, and I worked really hard on pushing Kurt to get the vocals, you know, really really well thought out melodically what he was doing. Some of the songs, you know, he'd, he'd sing me alternate melodies, like on Teen Spirit, he had two or three different um, approaches to it. And, you know, uh, of course, the the one that I liked the best was the one that moves around a lot the way it is. It's very sing-songy, and I always like that when the, when the uh, melody moves a lot. And uh, and and he was really cool about that. Um, I, I, was, I would also send him home as soon as we'd get something that I had time to sort of go through and tweak things and clean him up and... You know, get them so they just sound a little bit more focused and a little bit tighter. But at the end of the day, as I said, I tried to make it sound like a three-piece rock band. I'm only happy when it rains. You were becoming such a heavyweight producer at this point. You were doing The Pumpkins. You were doing Nirvana. Sonic Youth came and did a couple of records with you. What made you want to jump back in and do a band like Garbage? I mean, and, and again, you know, being the producer, being the, the artist, uh, being on the other side of the, of the window screen, what, what made you want to do that? Obviously, you could have had a very comfortable life as a producer at that point. Yeah, you know, I was... Uh, somewhat stupid in a way to want to get back into do, being in a band. Uh, it, it sort of fell, we sort of fell into it really because I started doing remixes for like U2 and Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and House of Pain. And that to me was liberating because it was sort of breaking out of just recording bands. Um, I, I fell in love with Public Enemy and what they were doing with samplers in the studio. And so I bought a, a, an Akai S1000 sampler and started using that in, in the record making process. And and when I started doing remixes, it was stripping the tracks down, sort of recording all new bits and pieces, and then putting the vocals in on top of it. And, and uh, Duke and Steve started playing with me, and we kind of, you know, because I'd been in bands with them before, we kind of thought, oh, this is cool. Maybe we should sort of, you know, put some tracks together with, uh, see if we can get someone to sing on them, and, uh, and we'll put it out. It might be kind of cool and kind of fun. No intention of touring or, or no intention of doing it full time. And then we met Shirley, and we, we made uh, the first Garbage record, and then... All of a sudden, the radio started playing Vow, and, and Geffen called, and Elmo called, and our, our label and said, you got to go on tour and do some dates. And then we thought, oh, okay, well, maybe this will be fun to go out for like six weeks and do it. And then the snowball effect took over, and I got sucked <laughs> into the garbage zone. <laughs> and, four, uh, four albums later, it, right? Yeah, four, ten years and four albums later. And, uh, I mean, it, it was really cool in a way to sort of 
had that kind of success as a musician and being in a band because you know I'd been in bands before that um, you know we were successful on a very small in small terms you know in, in Madison or the local scene, but it was great to sort of feel like we were sort of uh, at least for me and what we're my bandmates were doing we we're sort of pushing each other pushing the envelope in terms of what we thought you could do in terms of making a rock band. You know what? What can you do in the studio, and you know how can you put pop melodies with buzzy guitars and use hip hop loops and whatever? And so it was somewhat of an experiment we started, and um, and then Shirley just grew into a incredible front person, and you know really grew into her own as an artist, and and the band, you know, she became the, the focal point of the band, and and kind of we just you know all of a sudden we're playing in you know Wembley Stadium and all this <laughs> stuff, and it's like. How the hell did that happen? You know, it, it was it is it was a hell of a ride. You know, and it's uh, I'm I'm glad right now that we're on on hiatus because uh, I think we kind of hit that wall where we were just in each other's face for too long, and uh, it's uh, it's been good for me to get back in the studio. You know, I did the Against Me album and and uh, worked with Jimmy Eat World, and I'm just finishing up the Subways record, and I'm actually working with Shirley, uh, helping her write some songs. She's been working on a solo record, and. Uh, so it's, I mean, I still see her, and I and I talk to my bandmates uh, fairly regularly. But um, it, there's again, there's no plans to tour anytime in the near future. But who knows? You know, never say never. Butch, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Thanks, you guys. If you have any comments on our interview with Butch Vig or anything else we talk about on Sound Opinions, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Greg and I will review the new albums by Goldfrapp and the Baltimore indie rock duo Beach House. Back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And those are the enchanting sounds of the duo Beach House. A, uh, a twosome from Baltimore. That song is called Wedding Bell. It's from their new album, Devotion. They got their start, Greg, back in 2005 in Baltimore. We're talking about Alex Scaly, the guitarist and keyboardist, and Victoria Legrand, who plays keyboards and does the main vocals. She uh, was born into the music business as the niece of French composer M- Michelle Legrand. They've been making some noise in a, in a very discreet and polite <laughs> yeah. way uh, for several years. Uh, indie rockers have been loving them. They're beautiful. 
beautiful, they're lush, they're dreamy, they're all those kind of things that people throw at pretty bands like that. I think the most colorful evocation I saw was Joni Mitchell uh, jamming with a chilled-out My Bloody Valentine Whoa. in Laurel Canyon. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to say whether I agree with that yet what or that not. Mean? I don't know. It's some fanzine kid wrote it, and they had fun with it, okay? Uh, here is a song from this album, Devotion, called Gila. Let's uh, give it a spin on Sound Opinions, and then we'll tell you what we think of this album. That's Gila from the second Beach House album called Devotion. You hear that song and you pretty much get exactly what Beach House is all about. (laughs) The dirge-like pacing, you've got that muted percussion, the undulating keyboards, a little bit of slide guitar in the background. Reverb, reverb, reverb on those vocals. Every vocal sounds like it's in some big cavern. Or at the bottom of a well. You know what? Uh, she sounds like she's floating in one of those. Yeah. You know, remember the tank in Altered States where you float and you have the out-of-body experience? She's singing from one of those. Exactly. And, and you know, in very small doses, uh, it's an intriguing sound. It's understandable why people might like it. There are reference points here to very cool hipster bands of the past like Mazzy Star, Galaxy 500, mm-hmm. Slow Dive. There's a lot of reference points to these bands that sort of specialized in very slow, dreamy music. In the case of Mazzy Star, the parallels with the female vocal are pretty apparent. Or maybe the Velvet Underground when Nico was singing some ballads yeah. on their first album. These are all worthwhile reference points, very cool reference point. But that's the point. Uh, we've heard this sort of thing before. And we've heard it done much, much better, better before. Much better, yeah. This is a one-tempo album. I challenge anyone out there to sit through <laughs> all 45 minutes and start differentiating one song from another. It becomes one long blur after a while. And, and I find this record stultifyingly boring. I hate this record. Why did you make me <laughs> review it? I thought you were going to tell me you liked it because you were the one saying we really ought to talk about Beach House. I did. I, I, well, I, I, stand, uh, I stand accused and well, uh, I, think I, t- I back off. Let <laughs> us do a service then for the record 
buy in public, don't buy this record. The reason that, that I'm so upset is the level of hype that's coming from the well, indie blogosphere. I mean, you know, I mean, it's as if they've never heard anybody be quiet before. Yeah. You know, and yet that's one of the most played out sounds in the world. Look, there are plenty of bands that do it right. You're right. Go listen to Galaxy 500. Listen to Low. This isn't new, and it's not any different, and it's boring as hell. So what is everybody getting excited about? I got to say, it's a trash it record. Yeah, you know, trash it and go buy a Galaxy 500 record. What you're hearing is a little bit of the new Goldfrapp album. It's called Seventh Tree, and that song in particular is called Cologne Cerrone Houdini. <laughs> and Did you I, bother to parse what that means? Well, I don't understand. Cerrone is the uh, famous French disco composer. He worked a lot with Donna Summer, and uh, i got to say that's a pretty cool reference. One of their earlier albums was called Supernature, which was also the name of a Cerrone album. So they got a fixation with this guy. Yeah. And I'm guessing that Cologne is a reference to, uh, you know, Krautrock, German art rock from the yeah, early can, 70s. Can, can was from Cologne. And Houdini, of course, is the uh, famous uh, escape artist. Yeah, but I just don't know what those things have to do <laughs> so with each other, So what those three right? have to do with each other, I don't know. But it's the name of the new song from, uh, from Goldfrapp. Who are Goldfrapp? It's a duo. Alison Goldfrapp, who uh, made a bit of a name for herself in the 90s, singing with a number of these ambient electronic artists like Orbital and Tricky, who was uh, one of the first members of that trip-hop movement out of Bristol, England in the mid-90s. She was all over Max and Quay in 95. She was indeed. And then she hooked up with this uh, composer, Will Gregory, who heard some of her demos and and said, hey, I want to work with you, I want to write some songs together with you. Uh, They came out with a record called Felt Mountain, under the name Goldfrapp in 2000, which was a lush orchestral record with a kind of a a creepy Berlin cabaret vibe to it. They followed it up with two more disco-oriented records, Black Cherry and Supernature, and now with their fourth album, Seventh Tree, they're back to a more of a bucolic, psychedelic folk sound, but they're they're putting their own particular spin on it. A lot of people say there's a lot of acoustic guitars on this, but Gregory says, no, there are acoustic guitars that have been sampled by keyboards because we can't actually play (laughs) acoustic guitars. So it's sort of a synthetic version of an early 70s British folk rock record. Let's hear a track from it that may give you an example of what's going on here, a little bit more low-key than their previous two disco records. It's called Clowns. It's from the new Goldfrapp record, and it's on Sound Opinions. Only clowns who play with don't
That's the song Clowns by Goldfrapp, the duo of Alison Goldfrapp on vocals and uh, multi-instrumentalist Will Gregory behind her. Their new album's The Seventh Tree. Um, Greg, you and I have been taking divergent paths <laughs> through the woods on this band from the beginning. You loved that initial uh, flush of orchestral pop that they gave us on Felt Mountain, and I didn't like it at all. We kind of switched places on the middle two albums. Yeah. I actually liked the last record, Supernature, quite a bit because uh, I had no problem buying her as a postmodern Donna Summer. You know, she was really doing that whole breathy, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. heavy panting thing basically over the grooving <laughs> disco beats. Now they're back to one. Wanting to be, I, I don't know, like the Incredible String Band or something. Talk about psychedelic folkies. And uh, this album let me down. And pe- people, I'm going to start getting like hate mail from people. What is it? Don't you like any duos? Because I hated the Ravenettes last week. And I really just hated Beach House. And Goldfrapp is a duo. And I'm not down at all with the Seventh Tree either. I got to say, this is another trash it record for me. Well, it's not a trash it for me at all. I can't recommend it uh, completely. But I think there are several really nice tracks on, on this. I think the orchestrations, again, are, are one. Wonderful. And you're right. I, I was a sucker for that first Goldfrap record, and I feel this is a return to that sound. It's very felt mountain to me, and uh, I think it's not quite as good as that record, but when it's on, it's really good. That song, Cologne, Cerrone, Houdini, for example, I don't know what it's about exactly, but I like it. I like the way like the title. I like the way the orchestrations work. I like her voice. I like the way he orchestrates her voice. They have sort of a faintly decadent Berlin cabaret vibe about them, totted up with some modern orchestration that I think is really cool when it works well. And about half of this album works really well. I just think it's a little samey sounding. Some of the ballads get a little bit wary sounding in the middle of the record. I wish there had been a little bit more variation in this record, but I'd say about half of it's pretty good, so I'm going to give it a burn it. I, I got to stick with the trash. I think, you know, I don't think you really know what decadent Berlin cabaret sounds like. <laughs> because if you want that, go to the Dresden Dolls, yeah. and you, you there's a duo I like, and oh, you're always but, goofing but her, on me for liking them. But her voice is so cool. I think that's 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 what does it for me. I, like, I want my Berlin see, cabaret with a sexy voice, and she's got it, one. I've always got to dig and dig and dig, and it always comes down in the end. It's like, I just, I'm just i kind of hot for the singer. Why don't you just say that up top? I don't care what she looks like. I like her voice. Well, I don't she's care got what, a great voice. I don't care why you're hot, but you should have just fessed <laughs> up right at the beginning. I got a little crush on Alison Goldfrapp, and now we got the bottom line it's here for you. It's a strictly musical thing. I like the music. Yeah, it's, just, it's intellectual, right? Well, what have we got next week on the show? Next week, Jim, we have our annual wrap-up of the South by Southwest Music Conference. We're going to go there. We're going to scout out 1,400 bands, <laughs> and we're going to come <laughs> I'll back. I'll take 700. You yeah. take 700. <laughs> and we're going to come back with about a dozen or so that we think are going to be make some noise in 2008. Excellent stuff, Greg. As always, Sound Opinions has been brought to you by our ace intrepid production team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Dave Mahler, the Missing in Action intern with our uh, fearless leader and executive producer being Southside, Tori Malatia, who, a man who I, I will endorse. Whatever office he wants to run for, <laughs> I'm endorsing the guy. In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here are some of the records we've reviewed on Sound Opinions. Healer from Erica Badu and her new record, New America, Part 1, Fourth World War. Jim, whether Erica knows it or not, she is part of a uh, splinter movement from that neo-soul movement that she started or helped start in the mid-90s. I think Erica Badu on New America is, is creating 
a murkier, more psychedelic brand of funk and avant-garde music that owes a lot to Miles Davis's On the Corner mm. from the early 70s. These kind of weird melanges of records that people really didn't know how to categorize and, in fact, are only now starting to come to terms with. They're only now starting to appreciate. And I think this record is in that same kind of category. She's moved away from those melodies and hooks that she was writing earlier in her career and now into this heavier kind of mood pieces, these grooves, these drones. You know, I think I'm going to have to listen to this record another 50 times before I oh, fully understand what's going on here. That's but what's I brilliant it, about I it. I think it's really cool for that reason. This is the first masterpiece of 2008. This is a brilliant, brilliant album, and it's going to take you some time to plumb all of its depths. This is a complicated record thematically. The music is all over the place. This is just a brilliant, dense, wonderful record. I, I, you know, I, I think this is a new kind of soul movement, and I've been waiting for, for like a seven-year. It, it's as if the, the innovations of Mama's Gun and Voodoo you know, were just put on hold for seven years, and now somebody's picking up the thread again. Uh, it's a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned, but don't be expecting another Erica Badu record like Badoism. This is a whole new thing that she's on to. No, you've got to buy it, and you've got to live with it, and it's going to make some demands of, of you, but uh, it's going to pay off. A-Punk from the self-titled debut album from Vampire Weekend. Uh, Jim, when I was reading about this album, as uh, anybody who scans the music blogs had to over the last years, I was convinced it was going to sound like Graceland 2. What they remind me of, though, is one of those preppy new wave bands from the late 70s, early 80s, very steeped in early talking heads, some feelies rhythms there. I actually like the pleasantness of this record. It's very breezy, very easy to listen to. But I, I do think it's been killed by the hype. I think so oh. many people have been talking about this record so long. Well, I, I intensely dislike this record, Greg. I don't think that I'm ever going to forget it because it is just so obnoxious. I'm not going to be able to get it out of my why, why brain. Why do you think it's obnoxious, though? Well, the lyrical references to Cape Cod. Well, let's look at Cape Cod Quasa Quasa. In that song alone, they are name-checking name Louis Vuitton, Benetton, Peter Gabriel. Can you stay up to see the dawn in the color of Benetton? My musical argument against this band can be summed up as they are kind of the uh, embodiment of indie rock's response to Sasha Frera Jones' very controversial piece a couple of months back in The New Yorker where he was saying that there is no soul, there is no black rhythm in indie rock today. So these guys went and they stole every black rhythm they could find from Caribbean to, to Soweto, Afropop. You know, they I do hate it in a, this record. They it do it in a very... They're, they're preppy guys and I, I think they almost poke fun at it. They're, in their first video, they're, they're seen lounging on a yacht. I, I would say Simon is much more pretentious lyrically than the these guys. I yeah, think but they, they are not that. They are not nearly that good on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I am going to have to go with a trash it for this Vampire Weekend I, album. I think it's a perfectly pleasant pop record that has been overhyped. It's a burn it record. You can hear all of our record reviews at soundopinions.org. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.